0: Today we're here to thank God for the good mothers that we've known. Good mothers most of us have benefited from. Uh, The good mothers that have laid down their lives in many ways. Uh, Just like some of y'all right now, the first couple times I watched this video I was a total blubbering mess. And um, it's emotional to think about our mothers. And the question is why? Why does it make us so emotional? I know Mother's Day is hard for some of us for various reasons, but when we think about the love of a mother, uh, it really is something that transcends the norm. It transcends what makes sense. And so regardless of religion or location or language or culture, all good mothers have this one common denominator, that common thread that strands them all Together and and they have it all in common. It is this fierce, ferocious, just protective, borderline, paranoid love of their children. And every good mother knows that that instinctive love. That will get violent if it needs to, man. I I saw a couple videos uh, this week of uh, heroic mothers. Man, you want to entertain yourself for about an hour, go to YouTube and and Google heroic mothers uh, or uh, heroic mothers in action. Good Lord. Uh, There is some stuff, man. There was this woman in Florida who is shopping with her 13-year-old daughter. And this 30-year-old man just decided he was going to take her. He's going to kidnap her there in broad daylight, you know, as they're shopping. He grabs her by the hair and tries to drag her out the store. And this mother, who probably had half the physical strength that this grown man had, she just had her way with him, man. I mean, she just beat that man to a pulp until he let go. And when he let go, she just keep on beating him, you know. It's just like she wasn't done, you know, she wasn't just freeing her daughter. She was teaching this man a lesson. And, you know, like his mama should have, right? She was just like kicking into high gear and just beating him up. And, and you've probably seen um, stories, uh, videos, reports like these um, all over the Internet. There was, uh, it was another story that I came across of a woman in Oklahoma, a mother who was dog-sitting for someone else. And this dog started going after her 2-year-old daughter. And this dog mauled her two-year-old daughter, and the, the little girl survived and, and will be fine. But in that moment, this woman kicked into high gear. Like, immediately, she went into mom mode. And you don't mess with a mama, man. Even if you're an attack dog, you don't mess with a mama. And this mama, she, her first move was, I don't know how she did it. She opened the dog's mouth and shoved her fist down the dog's throat. She punched the dog in the neck from the inside. It's an amazing thing if you think about it. And when she's got her fist good and inside his his throat, then, and this is going to grow some of y'all out, but this really happened, then with her teeth, she rips off a dog's ear with her teeth. And she just, if you can picture this, mom, fist down the dog's throat, dog's severed ear in her mouth, just savagely, you know, controlling this attack dog that had threatened her child. This is what the love of a mother looks like when pressed to, to the extreme. And if you've had a good mother in your life or if you've got a good mother in your life now, you know what that's like. And I know that not all of us have and I just wanna acknowledge that. I know Mother's Day ain't easy for everyone because some of you never had a good mother who would fight for you that way. Some of you had a good mother and she's not around anymore or she you know, has Alzheimer's. Some of you have moms that are struggling uh, with health issues. And I know it's hard. I just know. Some of you, this is your first Mother's Day without your mom. and there's nothing harder. It's just brutal to think about. So my heart is with you. But I also have to recognize the mothers who would fight like that mother did, you know, in Oklahoma. Like, my mom is that way. My mom, I, she's never not said in a conversation with me, I love you. And she would, you know, even if we're fighting. Why did you <laughs> fail that class? I love you. You know, like, this <laughs> so is a little schizophrenic, but she wants me to know that I'm loved no matter what. My mom is fierce and ferocious, just like, just like many of the moms here. I mean, she, would have, she wouldn't have just taken that dog's ear. She would have hung that dog's ear from her rearview mirror just to send a message to the other dogs in the neighborhood. You know, this is what will happen when you mess with my kids. And some of you have moms um, like that. It's that ferocious love of a mother. Now, what I want you to know is what the Bible says about the love of a mother. The Bible says... The love of a mother is akin to the love of God. That God loves like a ferocious, fierce, desperate, determined mother. The Bible says in Hosea 13, 8, Like a bear robbed of her cubs, I will attack them. Those are the bullies that are bullying her children. I will attack them and I will tear them asunder. So... Sometimes when we say God is love, we think like sweet and sentimental. God's also love like uh, a mama bear that's been robbed of her cubs and nothing will stop her from finding them and finding those who took them from her and uh, dealing justice. So when we look at a mother's love, which is at times savage and severe, sometimes we have to see that that's how God loves us as well. Like a mother, like a mother bear. Savage and severe when necessary. This month, um, we're talking about the church with this series called Semi-Organized Love. Um, as opposed to organized religion, we're talking about the nature of the church being something other than maybe what we've experienced. Um, and the question is, what is church here to do? What, are we, what is this thing that we do every week? Why do we gather and sing songs, what is church for? And on this Mother's Day, before I say anything more, I think it's worth saying that if the church was half as tenacious about our mission to make Jesus known, as mothers are about their children, then we probably wouldn't have to talk about all the churches that are closing, or, or we probably wouldn't have, you know, denominations in crisis and things like that, because the whole world would know the truth about Jesus. And the truth about his gospel, but generally we know the church has not been very tenacious about its mission. And unfortunately, generally, the church's mission has shifted from making sure the whole world knows about Jesus to making sure our institution survives. And this breaks my heart. I hope you can hear week to week how much this fact breaks my heart, that the church has become an institution. We've become reduced to an institution fighting for its own survival. Because whenever an institution or anybody fights for their own survival, everything's about fear. And everything in the world is a threat when you're worried about your own survival. And so what we do is we create helicopter culture is kind of like helicopter moms you know and not to pick on helicopter moms i know there are a few in this room um i might or might not be married to one but some of that helicopter mothering is fear-based what if you know what if that what if this sometimes the church creates a helicopter culture because we're afraid and everything's about fear and so some of you grew up in these churches where everything was about telling you all the stuff you're not allowed to do all the stuff you can't do none of the stuff that you can So don't go there, don't hang out with them, don't go to that party, don't drink, don't have sex, don't do drugs, don't curse, you know, don't do this, don't do that. And almost to the extent of like scaring you uh, into believing, scaring you into being a Christian, that's what helicopter cultures do. It's about policing people, it's about fear. When we look at the book of Acts though, which is what we're doing this month as we're talking about the nature of the church, Acts is the fifth book in the New Testament. It's the story of how the church began. And so if you want to know what something's supposed to be, it's good to go back to the beginning and see how it began. When you read the story of the book of Acts and the church, you see that it was never intended to be an institution fighting for its own survival. The church was never intended to be this safe place where nice people get together and share pleasantries once a week. The church was always intended to be risky, taking risks for the sake of the gospel. It's not intended to be safe. It's, in, it's intended to take risks for uh, the purpose of making sure others know that they can be secure, they can be safe with Jesus, that they have a home with Jesus. It's for the world outside. So. Acts is the story of how the church began, what it's really meant to be. At this point, I'd like you to take your study guides out if you have them. They were in your uh, paperwork that you were given, and they will come in handy today. We have a little more reading of Scripture than normal because we're trying to walk through the whole book of Acts, um, or at least most of it. So we're going to read a little bit more together, and those study guides come in handy for that. If you have a Bible, you can also turn to the book of Acts, chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. So here we go. First of all, you need to know a backstory. The first Christians were almost all Jews. I mean, they were, I think, the very first Christians, all Jews. And so Christianity functioned like a faction within Judaism, like a denomination of Judaism. So the first Christian services were held at the temple and in synagogues and in Jewish people's homes. And so at this point, the church. The early church, the first Christians, are meeting in the temple. And this is what happens next, the Jerusalem temple, right? So this is what happens. The priests and the captain of the guard, that's the the temple guard, and the Sadducees, that's the elite ruling class of the, the temple life, they came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and said, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed. So the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. This is amazing. The most amazing part of the church story is that anyone ever believed the Christian truth claims, that anyone believed it at all. It's still amazing to me when rational, common sense, educated people choose to believe the stories that we tell because if you really think about it and just take the spirituality stuff out of it look at it logically it's a stretch it's a little bit of a stretch to say that 2,000 years ago this nobody this jewish carpenter who didn't have you know two pennies to rub together this guy you know who was just an average peasant really that he was killed on a cross and then he came back from the dead and started walking around and appearing to 500 people it's a It's a little bit far-fetched, right, if you're a rational person. And sometimes I think we judge people of other cultures and other times as being irrational. The people who believed in Jesus first, they weren't irrational people any more than you or I are irrational. And yet they believed. What do you think caused so many to believe so early? Even if you're a skeptic and you don't believe the numbers that these that these apostles reported, and believe me, I'm a preacher, I know how preachers are with numbers. And so, sometimes we count, you know, heads once or twice, or three times. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you gotta count at every service, you know, to boost your numbers and all this stuff. And So I get it if you're skeptical about the numbers the apostles report, but there's no denying that the church grew, and it grew quickly, and it grew early on. In the days after Jesus' purported resurrection, it grew rapidly, from 12 to 120, People at 120 men at the Pentecost um, event where the Holy Spirit gave birth to the church, and then from 120 to 3,000 by the end of that day. So, Peter gave his first sermon at the end of that, uh, at the middle of that day. And 3,000 people become Christians, which makes me extremely jealous of Peter. I wish I could preach like that. But man, 3,000 people after one day of life for the church. And then just a few days later, this happens, and 2,000 more men join the ranks. Now, that's just men. Every, just about every Jewish man was married, and almost all of them had multiple children. So the number of Christians at this point, just days after the beginning of the church, was something like 20,000 people. What in the world do you think it took for 20,000 people to divorce themselves from their traditions, to risk alienating their families, to risk losing friends, and to follow this nobody Jewish peasant from Nazareth because he came back from the dead? What would it take? Really, logically, what would it take for you to give everything up and make Jesus the center of your life? I'll tell you what it would take is one or several people that you trust, that you know. People that aren't prone to hyperbole or getting sucked into the latest craze, telling you, I know him. I saw him. It's true. And I'm I'm saying that that's exactly what happened. Even if you don't take these numbers at face value, we know, we cannot deny historically that the church grew quickly in its early days. And I'm telling you, this is how it grew. People who knew each other saying, no, I saw him. I know it's true, and what he said is true. Something in this life is true. That's what it would take for you, that's what it took for them, and that's how the church grew so quickly. The next section of scripture is uh, verse five through 12. We'll just continue reading here. The next day, this is after they were arrested, the next day the elders, the rulers, the elders and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas the high priest was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family they had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? And they're talking about a healing that they had done before. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Now that last part is bold. That last part is some bold words coming from Peter who, keep in mind, days before this, Peter was reduced to tears, running out of a room, crying like a child, because he didn't even have the courage to acknowledge that he knew Jesus. Jesus is on trial, being interrogated on trial, and Peter is there within earshot of what's happening, and people are like, hey, you've got a Galilean accent. Are you with him? Don't you know him? Didn't I see you with him? And three times Peter says, nope, nope, I don't know him, I don't know him, I don't know him. And then Jesus and Peter make eye contact and Jesus knows what Peter's done. And Peter runs out of the room, weeping bitterly, crying like a child, reduced to this just pathetic little man. But something changed between that time and what happened in this passage. What in the world changed to embolden Peter to say something that frankly could get him killed? saying that salvation is found in no one else but Jesus to a bunch of religious guys who profit from being the guys through whom no salvation is is found. Right. So now Peter is threatening their livelihood. He's threatening their institutional religion. And he could get killed for that kind of thing. And I'll be honest, if I stood here and said with no apology and no exception what Peter says here, that there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved... By the time I got home, I would have an inbox full of emails from people who have been offended and had their feelings hurt from such a judgmental thing for a preacher to say. But Peter didn't have email. They didn't didn't email guys like Peter. They just killed guys like Peter. And it's debatable, which is worse, having an inbox full of emails or getting stoned to death. I don't know. I'm on the fence about it. But that's what Peter was facing is is this kind of punishment and he had no fear about saying uh, what what he said about Jesus. And I know that for some of you who are really like soft-hearted people, I I want you to know God made you with that soft heart and I love that about you. Sometimes soft-hearted people hear something like there's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved and you think that sounds really judgy. That sounds really disrespectful of people of other faiths. People of other religions, we're just saying those people are condemned and we're the only ones that get to be saved. I want to I caution you not to project the hateful things you've heard other Christians say onto what Peter says. Because Peter's not saying what you've heard other Christians say. You've heard other Christians take joy and even some delight in saying that we're saved and no one else is. You've heard them on on TV, you've heard them in person, you've heard sidewalks, downtown, modules, whatever, like, you've heard them on blogs, Facebook, wherever. You've heard that. Don't read that into what Peter is saying here. Peter is giving witness to the nature and identity of Jesus. Peter is saying simply, look, if Jesus is who he said he was, there's never been anyone else like him. Because this man, he said he was God. And then he said, After he taught us things that we'll never forget, and and after he shared these parables that have a shelf life of 2,000 years, because we still gather and talk about things that this peasant said 2,000 years ago, and then he said, look, I'm going to die on a cross, and then he said, look, after they kill me, I'm going to come back, and then they killed him on a cross, and then he came back. Peter said, essentially, this Jesus is different. He's unique. Because he said he was God, and then he backed it up with his actions. And there have been plenty of dudes throughout the the centuries that have said that they were gods, and then they couldn't back it up with their actions. There have been other people that have acted heroically, even miraculously, but have not said that they were gods or ever claimed to have such an identity. Jesus is the first, the only one, who said he was God in the flesh. And then he backed it up with what he did. And still you might think it just, it sounds so exclusive It's so mean for for a Christian to say there is no other name by which we must be saved. But listen, if Jesus is God, if Jesus isn't just a, a man or a prophet, but he's God, then his is the only name by which the world can know God. You understand? So it's not inclusive or it's not exclusive or it's not mean, it's It's the opposite of that. It's it's inclusive and it's gracious. It's God leaving his throne in heaven to be known by the world. And the New Testament is clear over and over again. Ad nauseum, the New Testament says, look, it's for the whole world that Jesus came. For God so loved thee, world. Not the Christians, not the church. God so loved the whole wide world that Jesus came. First Timothy chapter 2 verse 4 says, it is the will of God that the whole world knows him. That every single living soul is saved is the will of God. Now some people may not choose that, but that is the will of God. That is where the heart of God is at. And so if you can somehow erase from your minds all the hateful things you've heard other Christians say and just read Peter at face value and See what he's saying about Jesus. He's saying that Jesus came so that the whole world will know that they are created by God, that they are loved by God, that they have been given by God a purpose, and that God calls them to invest all their passion and all their potential into this purpose for which they were created. And this life is more than 40 hours in a cubicle every week. This life is more than impressing your neighbors with your house or your car. This life has meaning beyond what is seen and bought and tasted. This life goes beyond the materialism That tempts us. This is what Peter is saying simply by saying, there's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Jesus is we said he was. And so it changes everything. Now, this is the love of God. He is not cold or distant or angry. He is the mama bear who will tear any enemy limb from limb who stands in the way of his children and him. This is God's ferocious love, his love for you. Acts chapter 4, verses 13 through 20. This is the last little set of scripture, and we'll talk some more. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the the man who had been healed standing there with him, there was nothing that they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows that they performed a notable sign. And we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him. You be the judges. As for us. We cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. You be the judges, but as for us, we cannot help speaking about it. Now listen, keep in mind, James, uh, I'm sorry, John and, and Peter were not exactly elites. They were not seminary graduates. John and Peter were ordinary guys. They were fishermen. They were very young. John was probably the youngest disciple, early teens. Peter was not a teenager, but he was probably early 20s. Peter was the only disciple who was not a teenager, by the way. And so these guys, ordinary dudes, right? We know a little bit about them. We know that Peter uh, really enjoyed fishing, particularly fishing in the nude. This is true. Peter liked fishing all night naked. You can look for yourself, John 21, 7. Go ahead and look it up. I don't care. Peter liked to fish all night with no clothes on. That's the kind of guy Peter was. Every guy here has a friend like Peter. So, (laughs) some of y'all are the friend. (laughs) So, uh, that's Peter. Now, John, as I said, he was really young. John and his brother James were two of the first disciples Jesus called. And John and James uh, were infamous I believe, for their extraordinary flatulence. The only reason I can imagine Jesus nicknaming James and John the sons of thunder, as he did in Mark 3, the sons of thunder. These were guys hanging out, y'all. Y'all loosen up a little bit. These were guys hanging out, teenagers. Any moms of teenage boys want to testify to the extraordinary flatulence of teenage boys, man? And so Peter and John stand there in front of these guys who could have their lives, preaching the sermon of their lives. They are just on fire. They are in the zone. And the Sanhedrin, these religious elites, these guys who probably were literate and were educated, cannot believe what they are seeing. The Sanhedrin look at each other and say, "Isn't that the guy we saw naked in the boat that day? You know, like isn't that isn't that the kid who can clear a room? You know, that kind of stuff." Where? Where in the world did they learn to preach and speak the way that they did? Two things happened to John and Peter. The the reason this matters is that some of y'all think you're not qualified to speak of Jesus. Two things happened to Peter and John. First of all, they spent time with Jesus. They knew his words. They internalized his words. And so when they spoke, they channeled Jesus. They tried to speak like Jesus. They let Jesus speak through them. That's the first thing that happened. They were familiar with Jesus' words. The second thing that happened to these ordinary, uneducated men was the Holy Spirit made, uh, took up residence in their hearts. So the Holy Spirit came in and ruled their hearts. And what happens when the Holy Spirit invades your heart and rules it and fills it is that you begin to love the same way God loves It's the primary effect the Holy Spirit has on you as an individual. You begin to see people the way God sees people. You don't have your own biases anymore. You don't have your own prejudices anymore. You see people the way God sees them. We've already said that God looks at his children like a mother bear looks at her cubs. And so you begin to love those outside in the world the way God already loves them. You begin to feel the same kind of desperation. That's why Peter says we can't stop talking about it. Do you hear the desperation in his voice? He is already doggedly desperate and determined, just like God is, to make the love of God known to everyone he comes across. We can't stop talking about it, It means Peter already had in his heart the heart of God. And that's exactly what happens to people when when the Holy Spirit uh, invades your heart. You can't stop speaking about it. And that, all that to say, That is church i believe that is what church is i believe a church is a gathering of people who are seeking the heart of god church is a gathering of people who are being familiarized with jesus's teachings so when we tell the stories of jesus from the time our kids are little till you guys are sitting here we're talking about the stories of jesus you're internalizing them you're learning how to speak and live and act like jesus spoke and lived and acted the second thing we do is that we open up our hearts to the Holy Spirit so that we can learn to love the way God loves, not with this sort of sappy, sentimental love that we think Christianity is all about, but with this ferocious, fearless love, this love of God, this love that won't let us stop talking about it. Two years ago, a (laughs) a woman named Julie... uh, Visited the story with her husband, Ryan. The reason I laugh is because they're not supposed to be here today, but they showed up anyway. I was going to talk about them, and then they ended up showing up. (laughs) So uh, y'all don't look at them. Just pretend like they're not here, all right? Uh, Julie and Ryan visited a little over two years ago, and they had moved to Houston from Chicago. Uh, And, you know, it's a struggle moving to a new city. Puts a lot of stress on finances, a lot of stress on family, stress on you know marriages and things like that, and and uh, and so they visited the story kind of out of um, curiosity. But Julie had left this job that she loved in Chicago, or she was a producer for the Oprah Winfrey Network, and this is Julie uh, with. Ms. Winfrey herself Julie was a producer for the Oprah Winfrey show for several years and then other shows on the network. And then this is Julie with Tina Freakin Fay and <laughs> and uh and and Julie kind of comes from a background that's a little different than most of us who's born uh, to a a father who she adored loved deeply. He's past now, but for a lot of his life he was kind of angry about all things religious, maybe described as an agnostic or an atheist. And they kind of visited the story out of sheer curiosity. I think they were intrigued but not ready to commit to anything. Um, they were very busy with their kids and their careers. Maybe maybe borderline kind of agnostic or spiritual spiritualist kind of stuff, just uh, not real sure about Jesus. But Julie made the... The same mortal mistake that many of you made, Julie sat down for coffee with Pastor Gio. And believe me when I tell you that there's no one in this room who's more determined and desperate for the whole world to know the love of Jesus than Pastor Gio. And by the end of that meeting, Julie and Ryan, in absentia, had joined a chapter group. <laughs> By the end of that month, they had joined the story. A few months later, Julie joined our staff as our part-time video producer. And a month after that, Julie, who was born in France uh, to maybe a, an atheist father, who Julie, who's tight with Tina Fey and with Oprah Winfrey, that same Julie was baptized in a horse trough in a gym across the parking lot. And... Uh, uh, we've all been blessed by her work, whether you know it or not. She's spent most of her life since that day making videos that compel people to give Jesus a chance, making Jesus known to people all across Houston and the world. Most of you who are new probably heard about the story in some way through the work of Julie. I asked her once if she ever worries about losing some of her old famous friends. I've always wondered if she worries about Tina Fey thinking she's weird now that she's a Jesus freak and all. I've always wondered, and I asked her if she worries about alienating family members, you know, and she said, I used to think about stuff like that, and when we were thinking about joining the story and getting serious here, it was one of the first things I thought about, especially when I took the job here, but she said, I don't care about that stuff anymore because I'm not afraid of it anymore. I'm not afraid of it and what people think anymore. And it occurs to me that for some of you, for some of us, the only thing standing in your way of following the same path Julie's followed, or the Even following the same path Peter and John followed. The only thing standing in your way is fear. This won't describe all of you, but it describes most of you. You grew up around church enough to know the stories of Jesus. You know essentially the stuff he came to teach. It's in your bones. You were created in his image. It's in your DNA. And you know the Holy Spirit is real. You feel him on Sunday mornings and you know the Holy Spirit is available to you. Some of you have had experiences with the Holy Spirit. And so you've got those two things. We talked about Peter and John having experience with Jesus and letting him channel you, you know, letting him speak through you. And you know the Holy Spirit is accessible to you. The only thing standing in your way for some of you is fear. Fear of change, fear of losing control, fear of not getting invited to the same parties, fear of not having the same friends, Fear of being looked at like a weirdo or something. Just that fear is the only difference. And I want to ask you what if fear is no longer an option? What if the love of God conquered the fear you've harbored to such an extent that you can't help it anymore? You can't stop speaking of Jesus and the love of God that is as ferocious as a mama bear. You can't stop telling others about the purpose for which they are created. I think that's what real church is. Real church isn't a bunch of flawless-looking people, flawlessly dressed with flawless kids. Everybody knows you hate each other. You fought on the way to to the church, and when you walked in the church building, you were like, be quiet and smile, and you try to look perfect for an hour, and we raise up little cookie-cutter Christians in our Sunday school classes that learn how to behave and be nice and polite. That is not what real church is. Real church is fearless. Real church is fearless in our effort and our desire to make the world know that they are loved. Real church looks less like the safe place, the institutional, neat place we all envision. Real church looks a little bit more like a mother. Real church reflects a little bit more of a mother's love and not just the sweet, I love you, but also the ferocious, fearless kind of love that a mother has for her young, especially when they are lost, especially when they are hurting. We know that a good mother will not stop until she knows her children are safe again. Real church isn't safe. Real church takes risks so that others will be safe. Safe with God. And so we're not here to create little cookie cutter Christians. What we're here to do is be like that mom who protected her young. If, if you have any image of the church today, I hope the image that you leave here of real church today is that of a mother on her knees in her living room, living room with one fist down a dog's throat and an ear hanging out of her mouth for goodness sake. That is fearless and ferocious love that will not be stopped by any attack from any enemy until every child is safe with God. That's who we're called to be. That's why we're always taking risks and getting out there so that the world will know beyond any doubt that Jesus came not just for Christians. That Jesus came for the whole world. Let's go to God in prayer.